Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here today on Voice of Islam. And today we have a, a lovely, um, interesting lineup of, of articles to discuss. And uh, these topics will be ones which, are, which I hope that you will all um, you know, find very interesting and uh, drive, any, drive benefit from. Um, we, at the beginning, we're going to speak about gaming and non-violent revolution. Um, the developers are shifting away from bloodshed. Let's, um, we're going to find out about that later on today. Uh, after that, we will speak about another, another topic, which is um, how the garden man invests retirement funds to cultivate community and combat food insecurity through Metro Atlanta Urban Farm, promoting equity and sustainable living. And a third topic, which is um, a very a burning topic right now um, around the world, especially in France, um, because France has banned the abayas in schools, sparking controversy over secularism and religious freedom. Um, but before we go into those topics, um, we can quickly go over the um, the news and the and the um, and the weather for today. Um, so for those um, you know in London here, we can you can't even see the sky properly because it's just f- uh, full of clouds. Um, because today is partly cloudy with highs of 20 to 22 degrees Celsius and lows of 12 to 14 degrees Celsius. Um, I think we can all agree that um, we needed this welcome break um, after many days of um, intense intense heat and sunlight. Um, you know, the, with the global warming, I believe that we are all fe- we're all feeling the effects of it where um, to the extent where even people in Scotland are seeing the sun more than usual. Um, so... Um, you know, it's a it's a nice break from from the heat, and um, you know, feeling the cool temp- temperatures, um, um, which we've probably been been <laughs> missing for a long time as well. Now let's get on to the you know to the headlines in the newspapers, and uh, many of the of the big newspapers have gone for um, you know headlines with regards to the the crisis going on right now in in Libya, where the the floods um, you know the the have been. In, in Libya have really affected the country and thousands have been feared dead. Um, the Financial Times um, um, says that Libya floods thousands feared dead um, you know with the with a dam that even busted um, that really um, you know put a lot of lives at risk and um, and thousands of people are are feared to be missing or or, or even even worse than that. Um, the metro has also gone for uh, storm Daniel catastrophe in Libya where 10,000 lost in tsunami dam burst. Um, a tide of water like tsunami has left at least 10,000 people missing in Libya as Storm Daniel moved across the Mediterranean and battered the North African coast. The Guardian has gone for um, another another piece on this as well, where it's beyond comprehension. Libya flooding leaves thousands dead. Uh, the Daily Mail, however, has um, gone for another headline, which is to do with the, the triple lock pension um, um, which is being under, which is under threat at the moment. Ministers threat to future of pension triple lock as government considers watering down next year's increase. Pension secretary says policy is unsustainable. This is the um, the policy um, by the government saying that there will be a an increase in the in the pensions next year and a rise. But um, it seems as if they are not committing to keeping to that uh, pledge, and they may have to um, get rid of it. Um, to save themselves some bucks, the Daily Express um, also goes for the for a headline with regards to the triple lock pension scheme. 
don't make sneaky changes to pensions triple lock and um i have um, gone for have also said that the state pension triple lock is under threat after election where neither neither labor nor um the conservative parties are backing um the um this um, system this this pension uh, scheme and they they both recognize that it will probably be unsustainable to continue in future and let's go forward to the um to the daily star the daily star have um have uh, have featured an interesting one where they say that the secrets of success is to never give more than 85% we often hear from uh, you know in especially in sports where a manager will tell the the players i want 110% uh, whereas now it says that forget about working uh, at 100% because the um, the experts are saying that you shouldn't um, actually using AI. They've ruled that you should limit your efforts to 85% in order to stop burnouts. <laughs> I think like bosses will probably not want to hear that. Um, <laughs> seeing their workers work, uh, you know, say that, you know, the science is backing that we shouldn't work as hard. Uh, but I guess the opposite effect can be detrimental as well if you work too hard. And um, you know it has a you know, terrible effect on yourself in terms of burnout. And now we go into the the Daily Telegraph, where uh, the human rights laws are protecting terrorists. So an ex-minister attacks the lunacy of rules such as the ECHR that block rendition of suspects. Um, and it also uh, talks about how the Rwanda-style scheme is key to stopping migrants, says the NCA. And um, it has covered also the pensioners to miss out on cash under triple lock tweak. Um, the Daily Mirror, however, have gone for a different um, headline, which is one with which is to do with the high street crime surge. Um, the year of the shoplifter, which is interesting. It's a theft soar, but where are prosecutions? We demand law change to stop epidemic. Um, and it seems as if like the police are not really able to do much about this and all they're saying is send us the 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 pics and cctv and we'll publish them um so this is their way of tackling the crimes but you know as we know with the with the current economic climate that we are in and the cost of living crisis um is not um, a surprise at all actually that um you know thefts are a commonplace at the moment where people you know are finding it very difficult to um to afford the costs of living and the food and and on the necessities that we need um just to get by um so what can be done uh, about that just a reminder that this is a um a call in show so if you do have we would love to hear from you um to call in at 0208 687 7878 and um and you know tweet us at uh, or or x whatever you want to call it at voice of islam uk um, so that that was a little bit um, um, of the news. Um, also, a very historical match happened last night as well, where England played um, um, Scotland. Just to um, it was a friendly, uh, but it was a complete package display by by England by Jude Bellingham in particular, um, where they put on a world class performance against uh, the bitter rivals of Scotland up north, um, and it was a, a game that was won by. England 3-1 um, despite Scotland being in very good vein of form at the moment uh, having won um, 5 out of 5 um, games in the Euro qualifiers and being top of their group a group that also has Spain in it um, Scotland were unable to 
um, to halt the progress of England and they showed um, their credentials once again. It was a game that was um, that had a lot of significance, uh, not only because of the um, the rivalry between these two clubs, but also because um, because they prepared to set for 150 years of the rivalry. Um, you know, this is it's been 150 years since the, these matches have been going on, and um, the, um, and of course that has a lot of significance for all the fans worldwide. <clears throat> so um, we're going to go into our first segment um, very soon um, but before that again I just reiterate that this is a call-in show and we would love to have um, 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 have you come in and speak to us and on, if you have anything to ask or anything to say uh, please do call us on a number um, and which is, again I'll remind you is 0208 687 7878 please join me after the break to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Um, welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam. We're going to go into our first segment, um, which is a very um, interesting one and exciting one for, especially for the youth, um, because it's to do with gaming. And um, the gist of the story is that gaming's non-violent revolution. Um, developers have shifted away from bloodshed. Developers are increasingly creating non-violent video games in response to a backlash against gratuitous bloodshed. However, looking at the top sellers on stream, the PC gaming hub costs more than $100 million. Venba is part of a growing trend of non-violent games. Recently, stream has held a sale offering about 250 wholesome games without violence. There are two factors which are contributing to the rise of kinder and gentler games. When people think about gamers, they normally picture them as male, but in reality, half of them are female. The most profuse productions and the biggest commercial successes in gaming are still usually including slaughter. Many of the biggest Hollywood films do too, but they are seeing the same backlash from film industry viewers, at least not yet. Larilyn McWilliams, a game developer, says, as soon as we attach a certain dollar amount to a project, it's like violence becomes as understood a feature as having graphics. Um, And a Canadian, uh, sorry, um, when people, uh, you know, a Canadian game developer, Chris Chauncey, was in the middle of making an adventure and combat game when he learned that four 
four-fifths of all games involve violence. That's a really high amount. And this led him to change his design to cut against the the trend. Uh, In the resulting game, players speak instead of killing each other. He says, I get a lot of messages from parents who want to play games with their children, but they don't want to expose them to violence. And um, so we have a our first guest here today, um, who um, will enlighten us further about this um, um, about this topic. And uh, her name is uh, Nick Balu. Um, Nick Balu is a postdoctoral uh, researcher at the University of Oxford, researching how video games affect players. He aims to move long-standing debates forward by identifying for whom and under what circumstances games affect mental health positively and negatively. Um, so, Nick Balu, thank you for coming on to the show. Welcome to the show, and um, I hope you're having a good morning. Hi there. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Hi there. So, um, to begin with, could you just outline the, the research you have conducted and your current works? Yeah, so I do um, work trying to understand how video games affect mental health. I look at things like the amount of time that people spend playing video games, um, to some extent what games they play, but a lot of what I what I end up needing to do is trying to work either with com- gaming companies or at least around gaming companies to try to get access to behavioral data, the raw data that's saying what people are doing because people have a, it's really difficult to report accurately all of the different uh, things that you're doing in games, how much time you're spending, uh, people, you know, play a lot, so it becomes course, difficult yeah. to, to remember all of that. So I end up doing a lot of kind of infrastructure work to try to get access to that kind of data. Yeah, you mentioned it, like, um, you know, how, you know, why it's hard also for people to quit gaming. It's, um, you know, some people can see it as an addiction as well for some. Um, so what is it that actually attracts people to video games and why can it be so hard for them to quit? So one of the key things uh, in my research that that's, people look for and get from games is something called need satisfaction. It comes from a particular motivational psychology theory where uh, that states people have three innate and universal human needs. Everybody has these, these needs and they get them from various activities. Those are the need for autonomy to feel a sense of kind of control and volition that you're doing things that you want to do. That's a sense of competence that you want to feel a sense of growth and mastery and effectiveness in the things that you're doing and relatedness that you get a that you feel cared for and connected to others in your day-to-day activities and video games are really good at satisfying those exact three things they're very well structured you get a lot of feedback on your performance and you can feel like you're improving as you play you get to play in the way that you want to there might be a game where you get to choose what character to play or how to approach a given scenario Um, and of course they're really really social experiences especially for kids uh, people are playing games in a way that's essentially their digital playground, right? It's where you meet up with your friends Absolutely, yeah. in an online setting. Well, of course, with with that also comes um, some negative sides as well. So, so how do violence and bloodshed in video games affect well-being? So the best available evidence that we have is that there actually is no meaningful relationship between violence in games and the mental health of the players that uh, that play violent games. It's, it's been a long-standing debate in the field, but with the, the latest and most recent evidence, there's no um, indication that that's a meaningful problem. There, 
for example, mass shooters do not play violent games. I'm from the US, so mass shootings are... Uh, <laughs> Commonplace. <laughs> a common, yeah, exactly, a common topic. And uh, often the media will turn to violent games as an explanation for that. But there's actually no evidence that mass shooters play violent games more or at a higher rate than the general population, for example. Um, there was even indication that when um, Grand Theft Auto V, that's a re very popular, very violent game, came out in, I think, around 2010 or 12, that crime and violence actually went down in the general population for a month or two after the release of the game, with the hypothesis being that people who were predisposed to violence were actually inside playing that game. <laughs> exactly. Of, Just keeping them away from the violence. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But, but that being said, I do want to point out one, um, one link that I think is maybe underappreciated, that uh, people who are frustrated by games, who feel like they're, things are unfair, that they're not succeeding, that there may be toxic communities that the people are being harassed, those people do show evidence of feeling more aggressive after playing. And there might be a connection where violent games tend to put play people in, the, in a scenario where they're more likely to feel frustrated. The violent games are often very competitive, and it might be the case that those games end up frustrating players more frequently. I've also seen like, um, you know, it's not just violent games which um, get people get players frustrated. Like for example, there's a lot of sport games as well, such as FIFA, um, and there'll be others as well, um, basketball as well, where, you know, you're playing with along with other people and it could just be one person who just ruins the game for you. And mm. uh, you've seen how people can also rage quit um, and, and there's there's clips of people smashing up the the, the, the desks and the keyboards and whatnot. So, yeah. you know, what, what have you got to say about that? What is the correlation between um, that kind of physical violence that they, they demonstrate um, and, and such games? Yeah, I would say, so you're right, that the, the frustration component I think there is key, of course. Um, you can even... Uh, I'm biased here because this is my particular research, but you can even trace it back to those exact same three needs. So when people, you know, games are usually quite good at satisfying those needs, that we get those feelings of growth and social connectedness. Um, but of course, those ex those three things can go the exact opposite direction. You can feel like things are unfair. You can feel like, you know, you're not welcome in this community. This is really common for women and sometimes minorities on online games that are getting you know, uh, excluded from, from these groups or harassed for their identity. And, uh, yeah, in those cases, it's, it's understandable that people can feel a little bit frustrated, can lash out if they don't have the right emotion regulation strategies. And, of course, that comes down to, uh, you know, monitoring yourself, monitoring the people around you to say, hey, is there actually, is this something that uh, is, is worth doing for you? This is how you feel after you're done. If you want to finish a game and feel like you want to throw your controller maybe it's time to do something else. <laughs> what would you say to those who say that, um, um, the, you know, the, the experience one has within games actually affects the reality? I give the example of, um, you know, there's a recent movie out called Gran Turismo. Um, I haven't seen it myself, but there is, um, I, I believe that the gist of the story is how there is a somebody who plays this game regularly, uh, a racing game, and he knows all the course inside out, and he knows the, the cars inside out. And um, he gets recruited and becomes um, an actual racer, and this is based on a true story. So um, you know, with that with that case, there is you know that experience that they've had from the games and how it's affected their reality and uh, their you know their ability within within the world. So why why does that not apply to violent games as well? 
um, you know, if somebody is regularly playing Call of Duty or whatever it is with shooting games, would that not then um, change their perception um, to shooting and um, and to into warfare? Yeah, so there might be evidence. Yeah, I think it's a really tricky one. I would say I personally don't subscribe so much to the belief that games change our view of reality, or at least not in anything more than kind of subtle ways. You know, this goes all the way back to uh, back in the 80s, the, the idea of the Tetris effect was a big deal, that when you, people were so obsessed with Tetris that when you closed your eyes, you would still see the tiles falling, and that has you know, <laughs> changed their perception of the world in some way. Um, and that is, I think those kinds of more subtle things can happen. I would be happy to acknowledge that violent games might have an influence on attitudes, that maybe people think things like gun ownership are more acceptable. In general, the evidence that we have tends to show that uh, people are really good at disassociating their media consumption from the, the, their reality and their actual behavior. And people don't think that just because they've seen you know, crime in some TV show or violence in some video game, that it is then acceptable to go perform those behaviors outside of maybe a small minority of people who, whose lines have been blurred. And that tends to be uh, some un- other underlying problem that we'd be better off addressing than their media consumption. And finally, Nick, um, why do you think that developers have taken such a long time to push back against violence or bloodshed? Yeah, I would, one, point out that I do think there is a pretty long history of non-violent games that are really popular. I think of games that I grew up with. You made a good point about sports games all the way back to FIFA 98 was was huge. I played uh, Animal Crossing on um, Nintendo when I was quite young. That's also you know, essentially by creating your community of, of villagers. Um, so there has been a thread of really, really um, popular and, and wonderful nonviolent games for a long time. But I think the the growth beyond that, that kind of, yeah, non- nonviolent games becoming really quite mainstream is probably in part down to an expansion of who counts as a gamer, who's kind of welcome in the gaming community. Back maybe 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, it was really primarily targeted teenage men, teenage boys rather, and that's no longer the case. The average age of someone who plays video games is now in their 30s. Uh, Women uh, make up about half of all people who play games, and those, uh, you know, adults and women are more likely to want these kinds of positive pro-social cooperative experiences rather than the slightly more aggressive, potentially hormonal teenage boys that are that gravitate towards violent games. So I think it comes down to uh, an expanding demographic of who's welcome in the gaming community. Nick, thank you very much. Um, that's been really interesting um, speaking to you and I've, I've, I've learned quite a bit myself. Um, have a lovely morning. Uh, rest well, whatever time. And it's pretty, pretty, very late there for you, isn't it? <laughs> no, I'm in the UK, luckily. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> that's good. Yeah, well, have a great day and uh, thank you for, for joining us on The Breakfast Show. Thanks so much. Take care. Yeah, uh, that was uh, Nick Balu there who... Um, um, who has a postdoctoral research in the University of Oxford researching how video games affect players? Um, I, um, I think you can all agree how you know that it was interesting to hear how the current research that we do have does not actually show that there is a um, you know a correlation between the violent games and people being violent in within society itself in reality, and how even in some in some instances with the, how he mentioned about GTA Five. And when it was released, um, for, for a good two months after it's released, crime actually went down you know, because everyone was probably just playing the game. Um, you know, it is interesting because, um, 
Even a, a James Batchelor, who's a gaming expert, he introduced a new book called The, the Best Non-Violent Games, which celebrates 300 peaceful games from the past 50 years. And he says that many unconventional developers who can choose their projects don't want to spend their careers designing games that include killing. And um, a game industry veteran, Job Stauffer, contributed to... Um, um, to violent productions, but now he started refusing to work on brutal or violent ones. He said, we see media r reports of mass shootings and war daily. I decided I don't want to be part of the problem, creating entertainment that involves firing rockets into buses. And the gaming uh, becomes a pastime for the entire family, becoming more diverse, fueling demand for titles and that don't in involve pixelated machine guns or swords. So, um, you know, even in the religious, on the religious side of it as well, um, for Ahmadi Muslims, it's um, who've been listening to the instructions of the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Surah Ahmad Mialabi's helper, um, you know, they'll know that he's warned about the risks associated with games like Fortnite um, has and has repeatedly mentioned this as well. Because it's not just about the violent aspect about them, it's also about um, the detrimental effect it can have when kids have access to um, their parents' credit cards, their debit cards, and um, you know, before they know it, um, the parents will see a big, a big bill on their, on their, on their cards um, for something which the kids have just spent, um, you know, from the from the game, and even thousands of pounds have been lost due to this, and it's a big problem which um, <clears throat> which parents as well are facing um, if their kids uh, do have access to those. Um, and nowadays, it's just a just a thumbprint away from, or just a face um, face recognition away from uh, making uh, payments, and so and so you know it's become even easier for children to um, you know to to access uh, their funds and um, spend them within game, which is what a lot of games are um, you know developed to do. There in a way that they they drag people towards uh, making further transactions within the game, even if the game is free itself. And the main money is actually spent within game. <clears throat> and once you go down that that rabbit hole, um, you make that first payment. Usually, that's when um, uh, you know all those offers and everything come in games. You'll notice how initially very very cheap offers come in for um, within games, and then um, as you start to make that first purchase, um, you know you're bombarded with even further offers, and um, and you're you know you're encouraged to. Uh, make a big benefit within the game just by, by making further purchases, and so Hazrat Mazam Rasulullah Muhammad helper has um, um, at the National Khuddam um, gathering Ishtama um, in 2019. He stated that in today's world, in all directions, there are countless temptations and attractions that can easily take a person away from their faith and towards transgression. For example, indecent television programs and films are constantly being broadcasted or streamed and weaken society's moral fabric. Similarly, the influence of social media is ever-increasing, and many videos and, post, uh, and posts encourage or facilitate immorality. The same is true with many computer games that people play online, especially young children or teenagers. Unquestionably, the harmful aspects of modern technology can easily take people away from God, away from the worship of Him, and over time, weaken a person's faith in the existence of God Almighty. Um, you know, so in terms of uh, in terms of this, like even within Islam, um, there is one fundamental prayer that we read every single day, which is called the five day the which is called the Surah Al-Fatiha, which is recited in the five daily prayers. 
uh, and in and within that, which is the opening chapter of the Holy Quran, uh, we are constantly told by God Almighty to seek help uh, by repeating the prayer, guide us on the right path, guide us on the right path. This prayer should be offered with total humility and a firm intention to stay on the path of righteousness and to reject the advances of Satan, who constantly seeks to entice us towards engaging in a type of illicit and deceitful behavior that will surely incur the wrath of Allah. So in today's world, the tragic uh, reality is that most people across society have forgotten their creator and have little or no idea of how disastrous the consequences will be if they fail to repent and reform. Therefore, you must personally develop the highest standards of spirituality and morality. You must set an example of truthfulness and integrity and practice what you preach. <coughs> Excuse me. So all this goes hand in hand with the topic that we are discussing because um, when it comes to uh, the transactions and you know making payments from your parents' credit cards and debit cards, there is a level of um, um, you know, lack of lack of truthfulness there and um, a bit of um, deception because you know kids will if they do have that access they will then turn towards um, lying and um, you know hiding the fact that they've made these purchases. And then, which causes a lot of trouble for for families. And um, when it comes to video games as well, violent video video games, we're often told that you know the behavior of the child um, is um, you know is affected by by such games. But as we've just listened to one of our callers, uh, Nick Nick Balu, our first uh, guest on the show, he showed that there is the, you know the current research doesn't show that. Um, you know that there is a direct correlation with um with violence within reality but nonetheless um just the gaming itself um you know that he did admit that and he did say acknowledge that there is this um this tendency for people who do game and to game within community where there are other people um where you're trying to develop your own game and uh, do the best you can and sometimes you may feel let down by others and that does um, affect one's behavior, especially if you're playing for prolonged times. So that's a big issue as well, where you know hours and hours are spent on video games. Some people are up till late nights um, until the morning to even play games with their friends, and uh, this is a, an issue um, um, which is which is pre- prevalent within society, especially within the West. So um, regarding the you know this um, how to avoid. The, the the true Muslims, like I was speaking um, within Islam, the the teachings that um, that that Islam imparts um, in this regard um, to avoid such instances where you fall down this uh, the trap of um, becoming more and more violent or or becoming um, or spending time on on things which are pushing you away from your own worship. As I said, I gave the example of those who stay up at night; they play till late. And uh, they'll end up missing the morning prayer just because they were unable to get enough sleep and uh, you know sacrifice their sleep just to play instead of to getting up and and uh, and, and worshiping. Um, so the Holy Quran speaks about those the true Muslims saying that Muslims are those who stay away from frivolous acts. They avoid pursuits or activities of little benefit. Um, you know, um, and you know yeah, there is even the example of playing chess, cards, or other games which are which can be seen as a waste of time. Islam directs all believers to desist from all such useless pursuits. Accordingly, Islam does not approve of idleness, gossiping among friends, or other useless activities. Um, Hazrat Mizar Masur Ahmed, uh, may Allah be his helper, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has said, 
should make it a point that khuddam, that is the youth, should play some outdoor games and not just waste their time wandering the streets or playing uh, indoor games on the TV or online. They should play outside physical games, be it football, rugby, cricket, badminton, table tennis or other games. It should not be that they just waste their time on TV and video games. <coughs> Excuse me. So that is another solution to the, you know, to this um, this issue that society has been facing, where um, we're all stuck indoors playing video games on the screen. Hazrat Mirza Masrumad may Allah be his helper said that one of the solutions to that is to get the children outdoors once again. Um, for those of you who are, um, you know, in your thirties or early thirties or you know late twenties. You'll probably remember a time where screens were not the norm. Where um, I remember when I was a child as well, where we used to be outside every single day after school. We used to be, you know, um, you know, take part in some kind of physical activity outside, be it football or, you know, just playing um, um, certain games, running around, uh, and you know, just being in the outdoors. Just that in itself was a way to um, to pass our time. And it was a much more beneficial way of, um, um, you know, spending our time than sitting behind a, a sitting in front of a screen. And um, you know, the the detriment detrimental effect of um, just the screen time in itself is something which um, scientists and uh, researchers have shown us that um, it can have a great effect on on, on many aspects, with this, whether whether it's sleep or it's your well being or um, you know, you know the well being of your eyes, um, you know the, the the functioning of the brain. All of these things are affected by the amount of screen time that um, that we give as well. Um, um, so it is it's important that um, we look after that aspect as well when it comes to um, gaming, where we should m- have some kind of balance, which is what Islam has regularly taught that you should not um, transgress one way or the other. We should have that middle path, that, you know, that balance. Um, um, spend a little bit of time, you know. There's no harm in a little bit of, of gaming as long as you know it's done in the right way. And there's um, also at the same time, you should try to get your physical exercise um, um, done as well on a daily basis. Um, so um, I have with me now my my co-presenter um, uh, Shojil Ahmed, who is here now. Um, uh, good morning and welcome, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for 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 the introduction. Um, I I think it's uh, important as all. Well. That you know, we as as you mentioned, ma- making sure that the balance is there, but also it it, it is. I can understand the struggle, um, especially for the for the youngsters as well, because on our smartphones we have so you know we, they're progressing so rapidly that we can also play these games on our phones as well, and these applications are becoming even more so uh, more so addictive. Because there's so many, you know, there's so many add-ons. You I mean the game might be for free, but then there's so many add-ons and in-game purchases that you have to sometimes. In some games, you literally have to buy those add-ons just so you can progress and go to the next stage, or you know, upgrade your whatever, you know, your your character, your weapons, or whatever. So sometimes it becomes sort of uh, an addiction as well for these youngsters as well, but. That's where that's where the balance comes in. Where you mentioned that it's it's. I mean, there's no harm in playing these games if it's you know just for just for amusement, just for just to pass time a little bit, just to ease off a little bit, you know, blow some steam maybe. But when it comes to you know when it comes to an addiction, when it turns into sort of you know that's the only thing that you can think about or focus on, and that takes priority in your life, 
over the other things that you sort of need to do. So if you have a job or if you're at school, you need to focus on your studies. If you're at a job, you need to you know do whatever your boss tells you, whatever your work is. If it comes in sort of these sort of duties and obligations, then then it's a harm, isn't it? And, you mentioned you mentioned also yeah. how like these games are now just at our just in, at our fingertips. Yeah, and they're just in the, in this small mobile phone Literally. that you can that you can uh, keep in your pocket. Those games which used to be on these massive consoles, they're now shifting towards um, this trend of mobile gaming. Hmm. And uh, if you've watched yesterday, there was the um, there was a live Apple event uh, where they announced um, you know many changes. Well, I had a debate if it's many, uh, but changes to the you know the, the, the there's a new iPhone 15 which they announced um and you know the Apple Watch etc and they said how you know some games such as um yeah Resident Evil you know very you know uh, high graphics and everything and CPU yeah high performance games they're now patented to um to these to these uh, to the iPhone as well yeah. where you can play these games L- yeah, uh, literally. Na- um you know they're, ne- they're they're made specifically for these kind of phones as well uh, whereas before they would just be for these massive consoles such as PlayStation, mm. Xbox, and yeah. whatnot. Um, but now you can get the same graphics and everything, and the same performance, all um, you know, high speed, and the best settings on, on on your mobile phone as well. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's be- and because it's on your mobile phone, it becomes so easily accessible as well. And uh, like you mentioned, all you need is uh, you know is a smartphone, and um, you know if you want to play online, then then some good internet or some good Wi-Fi connection, and that's it. Bingo, that's what that's all you need. But literally, because they're on our foot, on our on our on our, on our you know on our f- uh, fingertips, it's so so easily um, accessible. And that's why the you know there's a you know there's a good thing about that, and there's a danger as well. So the good thing can be that you know you're you can quickly play like a five minute game just to you know after like if you're working for like one or two hours. And you just literally need you need a little bit of a break. You can quickly do that. And you can do that anywhere. You can do that anywhere. Home. Before you just had to be at home to play the game. You yeah, to, you have to you know yeah. you had to connect everything. Your yeah. TV had to be there. You had to connect everything. Sometimes your game wasn't wouldn't work, and you have to do something to <laughs> to try and make it work. All these different things. But on your mobile phone, you can literally be on the bus bus going home, uh, and you can quickly just play a game as well. But the harmful thing is obviously you know if that becomes if you, you sort of you know engross so much time. And effort, sometimes even money into that as well, um, then you know it can lead to like lead to bad things as well. And obviously, if you're playing strategy games or puzzle games, you know that can you know one can say, yeah, I'm I'm playing Connect Four on my phone. I'm playing against someone online or whatever, which is okay, fine. It's a good game. And sometimes, um, some you know, like you mentioned, Resident Evil. Call of Duty, all of these type of games, and there's so many different games like this as well. I mean, the new Mortal Kombat game is about to come out as well, mm-hmm. um, um, or maybe it's already out. I'm not sure. I think it's out soon. And I think it's out soon. Yeah, those are like some of the most violent games <laughs> yeah. you can see. Like it's one of the most violent. Games. <laughs> it, it, it literally in some countries they even make it a little bit less violent. In America, you know, the you know it's full fledged, but you know. If you if someone's played the game, then they know. But if you know if they play it in different countries, such as here in the UK, when they bring it here, then they you know bring it a little bit down a notch. Uh, so there's not that much bloodshed. There's not that like, gory that, or whatever. Yeah, I've seen like six, seven year old kids <laughs> playing that game. And I'm like, yeah, literally, completely shocked. that's the thing. That's the thing. <laughs> You're breaking people's ribs, and uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, some games are like that. Some games are like that, and for someone who's a little bit older, who's a bit more mature, maybe in the you know mid twenties or whatever. 
that might not affect them as much as it would affect sort of a young teenager. A young teenager might play this game, even though it's an 18 plus game, um, you know, somehow a, te- a young teenager, a 13, 14 year old can play it and might get influenced by it as well. Uh, whereas, you know, someone who's, you know, 10 years older, who's, who plays this game might it not affect them as much. But still, you should still be, you know, cautious of what you surround yourself with. I think I think another important aspect is um, I spoke about how um, His Holiness Hazim Rizam Surahmed, may Allah be his helper, mentioned um, getting out and doing physical activity is, yeah. is, um, is something which would actually be beneficial for your for your health and um, kind of get us away from that trend of you know spending many hours in front of the screen. I think that has um, that has slowly changed to a trend where now we have esports where there's big massive competitions around the world where whether it's for FIFA or for Call yeah. of Duty or whatever game it is mm. and there's massive millions of pounds worth of uh, cash prizes for for the winners. Um, seeing that and also seeing influences on YouTube, um, for example, like KSI, yeah. um, you know, these people who, you know, instead of going through a, a, a traditional career path, have opted to, to play games hmm. and they've been successful at it. And this is despite the fact that their parents are saying you'll never get anywhere, you know, just uh, stop, stop playing games, <laughs> you're wasting time, you know, you're never yeah. going to make it. Yeah. Um, all the naysayers are there. But their success is, is, is manifest. It's clear that, you know, if you do go down, down this route as well, and if you're good at the game that you play, then you can also make something of a career for yourself. Mm. Um, I think that in itself is, um, it kind of brings a youth away from, um, you know, healthy um, you know, the habits and everything. And, and I think even like, um, I think some scientists have uh, predicted the, the future um, shape and form of a human being mm. uh, who constantly plays, uh, uh, it was a video constant games, game and video yeah, games and yeah. everything and they sat in front of a screen yeah. how you know they sat down they're slouched forward yeah, and uh, you know even spine, they have like yeah. a, you know even on their head there's the headphone yeah. uh, like gap along the, <laughs> yeah. along, the, along the top of their head yeah. um, you know so that kind of thing um, you know they're predicting how it's affecting not just our mental health but also the the physical health physical and then you know well. how you know how we're <laughs> evolving in that sense as well just because of this uh, this phenomenon literally and sometimes it sometimes you know people get so much addicted to these games um and so influenced by these games as well that you know it it literally it literally takes over it literally takes over their life and they can't you know they neglect their families their friends even their own you know physical mental health as well sometimes People, you know, they can't get past a level and they try so hard that, you know, they, they sort of uh, give up and they have, sometimes they have, you know, to go into depression that they can't play the game properly as well. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's an extreme level as well. But the thing is, is that, like His Holiness mentioned, we need to try our best to maintain that, maintain that balance as well. And obviously, we're... Where we, you know, you know, the world is a stressful place, especially yeah. if you're, you know, if if you're working as well, um, it can get quite stressful. Obviously, if you're giving exams and you're in school, that that is also stressful as well. But when you come into the professional world, going to work, finding work, all of these things are stressful. But the thing is, is that one of the things to cope with stress is physical activities as well. Um, if we if we take care of our physical activities. Um, you know, going outside for a walk, you know, doing some sports, maybe even, you know, it could be easy. It could be simple things just as, you know, just walking and going outside for some fresh air instead of staying at home in front of the screen. Because 
you can't get away from screen time. There's, you know, the screen, the screen time at work, the screen time, obviously, you know, the phones are so addictive. Um, <clears throat> you, there's no, there's no way to get around free. You can't get, you know, free screen time. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's it a difficult a, thing as well. It is very difficult. It is difficult. It's become the norm as well, like with, um, I think for parents, um, sometimes it's the easy way out for a lot of uh, situations, yeah. like if a kid's having a tantrum or, um, you know, I've seen some parents who like, if their kids won't eat, then they'll just give them the, the, the tablet mm. and um, they're spending their time just in front of the screen all the time mm. until until the point where it becomes a habit where they can't do without it. Um, and, you yeah. know, there's there's people who, you know, who continue down and into their later years, into their teenage years and... Um, and that's become something that's affected their lives completely and shaped them where they're cut off from society, where they've you know grown up with that screen time and it's become uh, what they're used to. And they're mm. not used to social interactions. Um, so it's affected their, you know, their, their development. Yeah. Exactly, their development. And at the same time, um, you know, affecting their mental health where it's become difficult for them to um, to deal with outside stresses as well whether because they're indoors all the time and they're not used to, um, you know, all the mm. the stresses that come with life. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, they lose they lose out on so many life skills that you know it becomes difficult for for them to go out to go outside. And with all these, I mean, with with gaming, I think from these online um, applications, that's also been you know obviously it has its positive aspects to it as well. But the negative aspects are that people are not really able to interact with one another as well the way that they used to. You know, so before, I mean, if something, you know, if you had to meet, if there was something happening to, you know, something happened to your friend or um, a family member, most of the time people would actually go out there, meet that person. You know, if it was a happy, a happy event, they would go out there and, you know, share with that person the happy sentiments. If, if something sad happened, they would, you know, go to that person physically, meet that person and uh, you know, give his condolences as well. But now, it's a sort of okay. Let's just go on a Zoom meeting, and uh, you know, uh, just meet that person online. Absolutely, call yeah. the person, video call the person. There's so many different things that you can do online that you don't have to physically go to that person as well. You can just say, okay, let me just send a message, and not even, or call them. Not even you know, fa- you know, not even video call them as well. So, with with all these online applications, sometimes it's a bit. That obviously is good as well um, for emergency situations and other situations as well, where you physically can't meet the person. But sometimes people have become so so used to these new applications which are coming out, uh, and obviously the applications are already out. Um, we've sort of lost that 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 one to one connection as well. That was so you know that was so precious to us um, previously, and I think COVID had a big impact yeah, in that. Of course, yeah. And I mean, during COVID, I I mean, one hundred percent, it was it was really good that we had these applications was all coming in, uh, so that we still had contact with other people. But now that we are sort of you know, in the you know the last stages of that, and we are coming out of that. Life has become so normal now, as it was before. We've still sort of, you know, there are there are people who are you know literally just used to staying online. They literally don't want to go out <laughs> and. <laughs> meet other people even work as well and it's also shown how hybrid hybrid situations also yeah they it's still they still work where you can still work from home on some days and yeah. um, and get the work done 
and a lot of like managers and mm. bosses and stuff have um, allowed that to happen and seen how it can still work. Yeah. You know, companies haven't completely crumbled just because people are working from home as well. But again, as you said, that has that effect as well where people are just in front of the screen the whole time. Yeah, literally. That's the that's the that's the thing as well. That's Thank the thing. You. Yeah, so we're going to wrap up on this um this first topic and after the break we will get back to, we'll go to our second se- segment um which is why the gar- where the garden man has invested retirement funds to cultivate community and combat f- food insecurity through Metro Atlanta Urban Farm promoting equity and sustainable living. Uh join us after the break and uh, we will be uh, with you shortly. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Um as mentioned in this segment we're going to be talking about um something which is quite interesting. Bobby Wilson, the garden man. Uh, invests uh, retirement funds to cultivate community and combat food insecurity through Metro Atlanta Urban Farm um promoting equality uh, sorry equity and sustainable and sustainable living um it is quite interesting it is quite quite interesting as well um that you know through you know Bobby Wilson has always aimed as according to uh, an article aim to serve locals through his gardening skills even taking the time to uh, implement community gardens in drug infested neighborhoods he's and uh, as i mentioned before in the in, in the introduction that he's been named uh, by his community the garden man and he's, <laughs> so he's invested um you know the retirement uh, retirement money for this as well and the farm actually helps uh, marginalized families grow their uh, produce sustainably has educational events for volunteers and also teaches locals uh, the value of healthy eating and promotes equity for farmers of color as well which is quite uh, which is you know a good job a good job to him according to the United States Department of Agriculture in 2021 nearly 20% of black individuals lived in a far, in a food insecure household in addition black people are almost three times as likely to face hunger as white individuals um you know according this is according to the USDA during the late 70s into the early 80s where we also would visit drug infested communities in the metro atlanta area to start garden programs and he's been involved in urban urban agriculture for over 30 years now and has grown that uh, that program into more than 3000 community uh, gardens across the metro atlanta area so it's, it is some good uh, you know some good work that he's uh, he's he's done isn't it i mean yeah um just um just just introducing families um to to the, to the gardening itself and to grow their own food yeah is something which is probably something they wouldn't have imagined to do in the first place because you know with food prices and everything going up and everything they got a lot yeah. of other worries to you know to think about to think about yeah um, exactly. i think but this then hits two birds with one stone where you're also you're not just um probably saving money in terms of um, growing your own food but also it's it's a more um healthy healthy option 
where you know exactly what's in your food and you're growing it yourself and um that in itself is something which is which I commend him for for you know for helping such communities where that wouldn't have previously been possible mm. um especially targeting those families who um you know are struggling with um you know with food shortages and hunger and and uh you know and what not yeah. so it's important because you know all these marginalized families they, they were taught how to grow their own food as well in their small areas yeah and obviously the the metro atlanta urban farm it allowed the volunteers to actually pick their fruits and and vegetables as well themselves so it is uh, you know it is a good thing that uh, that he has done and with with the what the what the community what the community is actually doing over there as well um let's speak to our first guest for this part for this part of the of this part this part this segment Jyoti Fernandez who's a campaigns and policy coordinator of the Land Workers Alliance a grassroots union of small scale agroecological farmers foresters and land based workers in the UK peace be upon you good morning and welcome to the show Jyoti good morning Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just to begin with, for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain what the Land Workers is, uh, Alliances is? Yeah, so I, um, I I work for a union where um, we bring together people who are small-scale farmers hmm. uh, here in the UK, and we're part of a union that's a global union representing 200 million small-scale farmers around the world. Um, and we try and work together to make sure that people have access to good quality food, no matter what their income is, and that we're producing food that we look after the earth when we look after it and think about feeding our communities uh, nutritious food. And we really also really celebrate, you know, what food means to human beings, you know, that it brings people together in a sense and, and really nourishes us. Jyoti, what are the, some of the current projects that the Land Workers Alliance um, is working on? Well, I do a lot of campaigning there, um, trying to make sure that government supports our right to have healthy, affordable food for, for all people. That you know, we we make sure that you know small scale farmers can get a good livelihood producing what they're doing. Um, we try and think about having more local food so that food doesn't need to be shipped so far, um, so that it can be like fresh and available, especially fruit and vegetables um, for people from their local communities. So we campaign on all those types of issues. And then we really think about um, how government can be supporting more community farms that happen um, in in villages, but also in cities, so that people can connect to where their food comes from. That's interesting because um, you know I, I myself I my next question is something which is kind of hits home with me as well. Um, I grew up also kind of on the countryside and used to growing and gardening and and whatnot, but moving to the city then that kind of um, part of my life kind of moved away, you know, stayed in the past. So how does your organization then help and inspire new or inexperienced farmers? I'm not a farmer, I'm just I'm just saying like for those yeah. who who are into that and want to start up. Yeah, well, I'm, I started farming um, myself, well, many years ago now, over 20 years ago now, but I hadn't come from a farming background, you know, one generation before my family had been farmers in India, but... Now, uh, you know, they had, they had come to America and, you know, they'd lived there and not really farmed. But then I decided um, myself that I wanted to raise my kids in a place where they had access to the countryside so they could have fresh food. Um, and so, you know, my husband and I decided to get some land and start a farm where we learned all those skills um, for farming by going and visiting places and, and learning about farming. And we found that really, that journey really inspiring because, you know, our kids were able to have that 
that fresh air and that good <laughs> food, you know. And um, and I think I wanted to um, be a part of this union and start working for this union because I wanted to make it easier for other people to be able to do the same sort of thing. So we work a lot with young people um, trying to, you know, help them understand um, that, you know, you can produce a lot of your own food in different ways, that you can connect with local producers and, and that you can also do work out in the fresh air and the, in the countryside with the soil and with nature. And that, that's a really rewarding thing to do. So we help with getting um, young, young people who are interested in that training um, and meeting other young people. We have a youth branch called Flame which is called Food, Land and Agriculture, a Movement for Equality, yeah. which is for young people who are really interested um, in, in uh, good quality food and trying to become um, maybe farmers or foresters or people who work in conservation in nature. And they work together to try and make it easier for more young people to do that. I guess a follow-up question from that is then... Um um, you know, what, what would you say to those who say that it's not very sustainable or like easy to, you know, to grow your own food throughout the year? You know, there's certain seasons for certain vegetables and, and fruit, and whatnot. Um, you know, so how how does one then uh, get by throughout the year if they if they're growing things and just you know constantly waiting for their crops to to yield? Well, even in this climate here in the UK, you can grow things that are available the majority of the year. There's a small part of the year in the early spring, which we call the hungry gap, where there's not as many vegetables uh, available, but there's still a lot of kale and um, fresh spring greens and chard and maybe the beginnings of broad beans that would be ready at that time of year. Um, and in that time of the year, whenever not as much is available, it, we eat a lot of things that are um, preserved in different ways, like fermented or bottled or chutneys um, and and get our vegetables in that way and you know you can always supplement with things that grow in but the rest of the year there's a huge abundance of different sorts of things that you can cook with and, and grow and make like lots of different recipes from you just have to be really creative about whatever is being produced finding a way to use it making you know a, a different sort of curry or a stir fry or a casserole but and and being fairly creative about how you use all these different vegetables to, to feed ourselves. Jyoti in terms of uh, um, you know farming as well and becoming self-reliant, h- how can farming help someone to actually you know become become independent or self-reliant in terms of food, but but in life in general as well? Well, being connected to the land in so many ways is really rewarding. It's rewarding on a spiritual level because it really connects us to um, you know to the earth, and that's that's a wonderful thing. Um, and it means that, you know, we, we can somehow, uh, you know, use our bodies um, to be able to, you know, produce something that we need. And that's a really rewarding thing. It means we can work with our families sometimes, um, you know, growing, growing vegetables, whether it's sowing seeds together or harvesting or cooking together. And that's a real way of bringing the family together. And it's also something that we can do with our communities. And so, um, you know, producing our own vegetables or or other things. Here on our farm, we also produce our own lamb. Um, and, you know, that's, that's great because we, we know that that's fresh and organic and that the animals have been treated well. And um, all of this means that um, we just become more self-sufficient in life. It means we're not so dependent on multinational corporations. Um, we don't have chemicals and 
lots of pesticides um, and, and different ways. And we also know that we're thinking about how we treat the earth well and, uh, you know, and feed ourselves in ways that means that future generations have access to good food because we're keeping it sustainable and looking after the earth at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's great stuff. That's great stuff, Shachi. Thank you so much for 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 joining us this morning and uh, sharing your experience and expertise with us as uh, with our listeners also thank you so much once again have a lovely thank day thank you so much thank you so i think there's some good work that uh, that they're doing uh, over there as well um land workers uh, alliance and um, it, it is good uh, to 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 actually see that there are people out there who are looking out for other people the the um, you know the, the the developing countries also, but uh, over here in the UK as well, there's so many things that we can actually do. Uh, we can grow crops on our own. We you know self become self reliant, yeah. Um, and uh, you know we don't have to you know sort of rely on someone else to actually give us what you know basic necessities. We can you know grow them ourselves. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is actually uh, it's funny because. At the moment, I live in a in an apartment, yeah, and it's very difficult for me. I don't have um like my own garden where I can just mm. sit down and just like grow my yeah. own things. So, so I'm looking at my friends and how they those who do have gardens yeah. and they're growing things throughout the year. And I'm like, I wish that was me, <laughs> and I'd have that chance to do so. Yeah, um, you know, um, but you know, there there are opportunities. I'll get back to you once we've um, we have a guest on on online, um, and I'll yeah. say how you know I tried to get work around that, um. You know that, that lack of experience that I do have in that sense as well. It's uh, before they actually come online as well. I think it's actually important for us to you know reiterate how how important it is in Islam to actually take care of those who are who are under who are, you know subordinate to us. Yes, and uh, taking care of our of our neighbors as well, and also those people who are you know who are maybe underprivileged. They need our help. They need our support. How much important that is as well. But like you mentioned, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, a little bit later on as well. But let's speak to our next guest, George Jacob, who's head of communications, Self Help Africa. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the show, George. Good morning and thank you for having me on this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, just to begin with, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you explain what Self Help Africa uh, exactly is and its aims and objectives? Sure. Yeah, um, we're we're um, an, a principally an agricultural development NGO that works in 17 countries uh, worldwide, 15 of them in sub-Saharan Africa, and our our focus is on supporting rural communities to um, produce more and earn more on small farms. Now, you might ask why why we focus on small farms. It's quite simply because up to 70% of the poor people in the countries where we're working uh, live off the land and rely on what they can grow on small farms for their support and survival. Mm. Um, And all of that has become increasingly challenging as we are all confronted by the issues of changing climate. Yeah. So, George, um, what what projects do you have in place that, um, that help communities as a whole sure well um, uh, you know across across the organization in 2022 we we had um, we were implementing a total of kind of 88 projects uh in 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 west africa in benin uh senegal uh nigeria um uh in 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 the horn of africa 
which uh, you know, like in Ethiopia, Kenya, um, both uh, you know, both those countries have been affected for f- by five years of successive drought. There are over four and a half million people food insecure at the moment as a result of those droughts. As you will also know that um, the you know the challenge of 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 changing climate is also pushing people off the land, and it it is creating. It is creating refugee crises um, that we're seeing here in Europe, but it is also uh, creating refugee crises within Africa itself. But if if I were to say to your listeners or or to the programme this morning, that one in ten of the people that live in Uganda are refugees from another country, I think most people would be surprised. But but that is the reality for Uganda. It's a it's a country of uh, approximately forty seven million people, and ten percent of their population are from another country, and they have been forced from their country either by conflict, and sometimes that conflict is the result of um, uh, disputes over resources. Sometimes there are other issues. Um, but uh, you know, I think there are there are many uh, people from Democratic Republic of Congo, from South Sudan, uh, from Ethiopia, from Somalia, living within within Uganda. So there is also <coughs> there is also a myth um, that we have in the West that we are we are accommodating a lot of, a lot of refugees from other parts of the world. But the the continent of Africa is actually housing more refugees. Than are leaving the continent of Africa every year. That was a staggering amount, 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is it that's actually bringing them towards Uganda, though? Is it because of the resources available it, there? It, well, it's because of the location. Um, uh, most, most refugees will endeavour to go to the nearest point that they can get to, and in the case, you know, to, to the nearest safe haven that they can find. And uh, so, so you, you have a situation in, in say... <coughs> In West Africa, where 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 a lot of a lot of refugees, it is extremely difficult for them to you know to go through the Sahel because the Sahara Desert is in their way, and there is also a lot of uh, political conflict in 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 that area at the moment. It's it's quite unstable. Um, if they if they go east through through Congo, or a lot of the a lot of the unstable parts of the Congo are in the um, in the east of the country, there, there are disputes there over over um, uh, mineral wealth, over various various things. And one of the nearest countries to them, and the same with Sudan, um, is Uganda. And its borders have been open to you know to 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 taking people, um, like the volumes of people that are flowing through through or into Uganda has been enormous in in the past ten years. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So, from what I understand, is you're helping those local communities, those regional communities, to, to then instead of um, trying to find a safe haven somewhere else, um, and try to get away from the drought, that you'll help them then to um, re-establish their farming um, practices and you know help them to have a sustainable living once again um, within their own countries, right? So, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. That 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 is the primary goal. Um, it is like people don't want to leave the land. People don't want to flee their homes. People don't want to leave their communities. They do it as 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 a uh, as a last resort. Uh, and our focus in in our work is on. And when I said earlier to make um, small farms more productive and more profitable, but, you know, there's two there's two parts to that. The you know, the productivity is one thing, and that is. 
uh, like in the face of changing climate, it is re- it is promoting new crop varieties that are more resilient and resistant to to to, to droughts and shocks. It's introducing new cash crops, and and then on the other side of that equation, um, there is also okay if if you're producing. If you are a small-scale farmer in in any of the countries where we work, and you are producing in isolation, how how do you how do you actually make money from uh, a crop of tomatoes or a crop of onions or a crop of grain? Um, if you're, you know, like, it usually is in the local market in the local village. Our uh, you know a focus of our work um, is also on developing internal markets and developing regional markets. We have really interesting projects at the moment in in uh, funded by the European Union principally in Kenya and in Zambia that are developing agri businesses. So so what we mean by that and and specifically is developing businesses that will do some level of processing, whether it's canning, whether it's drying, whether it's um, pulping of 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 fruit or or you know it it is adding value to. Um, to the crop that's been grown on the land as close to the people that are growing it as is possible. Um, just, just an interesting statistic on that. Um, like, if, if you take coffee, uh, coffee, is, coffee is a crop that is, 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 is native to Africa. Um, it, you know, the word coffee originates in Ethiopia, but only 1% of the coffee that's grown in Africa is actually roasted in Africa. Now that oh, really? uh, you know, so it's 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 sent to it's sent to Holland, it's sent to European markets, and all of the value addition of the crop. So, so rather than you know, like that, that's that's a good analogy. And as people are having their breakfast this morning, and maybe they're having their coffee, they can <laughs> they can think about that. It is the whole area of fair trade, fair chain. You know, like if you think about those labels, they really do make a difference. And in our work, what we're doing is. We're supporting uh, produ- production and producing of a lot of crops, whether it's cotton, whether it's... Um, uh, there's another really interesting one in, in northern Kenya that is um, the... There's an acacia tree, which is a, which is a, a kind of semi-desert, thorny bush tree that is uh, tapped for its gum. And that gum is, shows up in everything from Coca-Cola. It shows up in... In, in minstrel sweets, it shows up in all manner of things. Yeah. Um, and it is frequently tapped. The trees get tapped and the gum gets extracted. Um, and the people who do that are usually women. And a lot of the women that do it in the particular area we're growing are, are tribal women from the Sambora tribe. They, they look a bit like the Maasai, so they wear these very colorful clothing and colorful necklaces. Um, we're working with a company um, that is processing that acacia rather than selling it in bulk barrels to Germany or somewhere to be processed into something that then makes its way into the food chain. The company is now based in Kenya and it's doing that work and it's selling it at, at much more than it had than it would previous you know, than that crop would have earned previously. But there there are multiple examples. It's yeah, it's a very long story, and it's really interesting to <laughs> talk to you. And I don't know, have I gone down a rabbit hole? And please stop me if I have. Actually, you've um, you've led it on and quite nicely to the the question I was going to ask. You've given me an example uh, or a couple of examples of the the global inequities that are there. 
um, you know, in part you've answered that already. So, but but how does um, Self Help Africa actually help to uh, combat these um, global inequalities? I know you've given a couple of examples of how you've helped, but is there anything else yeah. which is a major example that you can give? Yeah. Well, well, the, you know, the fo- fo- focusing more on creating opportunities and markets within Africa for African people to 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 trade. Um, and to get a fair price is a lot of uh, is a lot of what we can do or what we are doing to to, to address inequity because people selling or people be, simply being unable to sell like the, like the old model of um, uh, a farmer producing something um, and and I have seen this on on, on visits to our programs where um, you know farmers on the side of the road and they've got a box of uh, tomatoes. I mentioned tomatoes earlier. Tomatoes are, are, are a really tricky crop. They're, they're very profitable, but um, when, you, when, when they're being grown by people that don't have electricity and therefore they don't have refrigeration, you, know, you need to get them to the market where you're going to sell them within a day or two. And the guy who, who's, who they think is going to buy them, he shows up and says, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you two pounds for that box. And he says, Bob, you're kidding me. Like, I need five pounds to feed my family. And he says, no, two. And then he drives off in his pickup truck. What are you going to do? Um, so by, by creating local markets, by creating opportunities, like with tomatoes, you know, there are ways you can solar dry them, you can, you can preserve them. You can, if, you, if there is a canning factory near, nearby, um, and also the other the other the other way is to, to organize farmers into producer groups that they're not working in isolation that they're members of local cooperatives where they can access inputs by inputs I mean good quality seed or fertilizer or whatever they need and also they have a market and they have a depot where they can bring their produce and it's a centralized source from which the the group collectively can sell so 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 this idea also, you know, it might sound like uh, like it's it's effectively like um, uh, an informal version of of what we consider in in in, in Britain, or are you talking to me here in Ireland uh, as a kind of a trade union, where there are representatives representing the farmers, uh, and and they um, and they trade on their behalf, they 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 buy on their behalf, they sell to them. Um, we have a, we have numerous interesting examples. We have examples of. Um, where farmers are now seed producers. So, so they are producing good quality seed that they then sell to the members. Um, in Ethiopia, we have grain seed producers that are now, that, that started as a small co-op and they're now supplying about 15% of the, of the grain that is sold and planted each year by, by um, farmers of certain crops in Ethiopia. So that's instead of, the Western, the you know, the American companies selling in their in in their seed stock or their yeah like I I don't want to say Monsanto or, or these big men but like I, you know, that's effectively yeah like I you know, and I don't want to demonize specifically one company by that but if you get local producers it is all about trying to like the you know, the story to some extent is in the name so it's self help it's about it, absolutely it yeah. about, different ways of empowering local people in the agriculture, in our case, principally in the agriculture and food chain, because it's where most people live. It's what most people rely on to, to, to survive. Um, and it's also amazingly, here's another statistic. Um, most small African farms have the potential to produce more than they do at the moment. So on the one side, you have, you have 
most of the extreme poor, and on the other, you have most of the you know, most of the potential to change. Now, all of and that you're facilitating helping them to get to that potential. Yeah, all 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 of the time in 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 many different ways, and I've and I've given you a few a few examples there, but. It is it is working kind of with people to you know to realize their full potential where they are because they don't really want to they don't really want to leave their homes unless uh, well look lots of us leave our homes and uh, you know um, but, but not not you know, out of necessity like they, they not, don't want not, to have to not, yeah. yeah yeah not not being forced to yeah yeah if you if you have a choice that's that's one thing if you're forced out of as you say out of out of necessity to to provide for your family so. So, did I answer your last question? Uh, wonderfully, yes, you have. You have. Thank you very much. Um, Great. I think that I think we've run out of time for the segment now. But thank you very much, George, for okay. for joining it's, us and for giving us the insight yes. into this. Thank you. Yeah, have, have a good, lovely morning. Speaking to you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. That was George Jacob, the head of the communications at Self Help Africa. I think mm. he's uh, given us a very um, very detailed, ex- very detailed and comprehensive yeah. answer and how they're helping. Um, you know, you know, farmers to stand on their own two feet and to stay within their countries and to, you know, to, to look after their own, their own people and you know, that supply and everything that they have and the and the and the demand, everything is all being taken care of within their own countries. And I think that's excellent. And um, mm. but yeah, it's a um, it's a very important subject. And um, it is, it is. And hopefully they they manage to succeed in the in the in the objectives, in the, in the objectives and endeavors as well. But it, it is, you know, like we mentioned before as well, the teachings of Islam. Uh, also, also come in line with this as well. Islam is very much an advocate for for you know for for helping other people, the people that are in need, uh, especially. In fact, Allah the Almighty mentions in the Holy Quran that you know people should take care of you know of the needy, the orphans, um, uh, you know, and those people who are deprived. Um, we need to make sure that if there is anyone. Who who needs our help? Who needs our support? Who needs you know? Who needs you know? Charity maybe. We go out there and we help those people as well. Stand up on their own feet, and whatever resources belong to them, don't take, uh, don't monopolize on that. Don't capitalize on that. Don't make it into a business. Exactly. In fact, give it to you know. If if it belongs to them, make sure that they have full access to that to that as well. A lot of companies they just come in. They, you know, they they force people into yeah, cheap labor as well. Cheap like, labor, literally, much money for it. It's, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's a slave trade in in this in this day and age, and then they, you know, they 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 make their products whatever they need to, and they don't even pay those people who are working on the grassroots, on the on the actual ground level as well. Um, so it's important for us to make you know take care of that as well. And I think the companies like this, what George just said as well, that they they go out there, they do help those people. The the, the 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 local people, especially in the African countries, and they make sure that they there is fair trade going on as well, because all of these things does help uh, as well in the long run, and of course in the short run. Um, but I think that's uh, you know all we have time for for this uh, for yeah. the segment. We still have one more very important yeah. to- uh, sub- subject to Abs- go. So absolutely, so we will go straight into that. Right, we'll go straight into that absolutely, and that is you know I'm sure that you must have uh, heard about this as well. France to ban a buyers in schools sparking controversy uh, controversy after secularism and religious freedom. So, I mean, obviously, this is something which is an ongoing thing. It's not something that which had just happened, but because it's, uh, you know, the the, the, the French government, they've, they've banned brokers, they've banned abayas 
even the you know there's a I'm not sure what it's actually called but it's something which Japanese traditional Japanese women wear as well and it's it looks like an abaya as well it's a long sort of uh, uh, a coat um, and it sort of you know covers every covers the whole body mm. and uh, you know they've banned that as well so it's, it's something which you know it's in the name of religion in the name of freedom of speech in the name of secularism they've actually done this as well so I think it's uh, <laughs> they're claiming to give freedom but at the same time they're taking literally. away the freedoms quite literally. an oxymoron in itself I think. it is it's not, they're not really the um, the vanguards of, of freedom <clears throat> the freedoms that they, they they are trying to uphold absolutely but uh, yeah I mean this um it's 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 not after the ban of the the hijabs in, in yeah. certain areas as well, schools yeah. and stuff. They've now banned the outer garments as well, and mm. the government has placed a ban on Islamic abayas. This the outer like loose outer garment that uh, a lot of Muslims um, yeah, yeah. Uh, wear. And uh, starting in September, after a top official referred to them as political attack, um, they're an, they're a political repeat. The the abayas are seen as a political attack and an effort to convert people to Islam. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just funny because being, yeah, literally. being Muslim just hearing that in itself is, is comical uh, the restrictions is in line with the uh, laicite which is France's strict interpretation of secularism which forbids overt displays of religious of religion in schools according to uh, Education Minister Gabriel Attal in an interview with the French television network TF1 hmm. um, the broad strategy according to critics has been uh, weaponized to target French Muslims um, yeah that's it's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? But as it you is. mentioned as well, it's the like the Japanese attire as well was yeah. uh, kind of um, comes under that and is and is um, and is forbidden. Hmm. Um, but that just just like is there any way that they will stop versus the head covering yeah. and then it's the body covering. The whole point of it is is for modesty um, and to you know to preserve their own value, and you're there to strip them of that. Yeah. So it's it's it's, it's um, astonishing that this um, that how far this government will go, and to what extent it will help, it will go to you know to to removing the, or you know erasing the rights of of Muslim women. Let's let's speak to someone who's actually an expert in uh, in in French history as well, and then will tell us a little bit more in regards uh, to this. Dr. Elaine Gabon, uh, who's associate professor of French studies at Virginia Uni- University in uh, Virginia Beach, United States of America, where he teaches all topics related to France, including history, civilization, contemporary society, literature, and the arts as well, with an emphasis on 20th and the 21st, 21st century France. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. For, for our listeners, what is France's history and uh, what does it mean to be French in this, in this country? Okay, that's that's a great question, especially in relation to this topic of the abaya. And since mm-hmm. the French seem a little confused and certain these days about what it means to be French, and they even created, as you may remember, a ministry of French identity and immigration and the mm-hmm. former president Sarkozy, because they had become so uh, uncertain, so uh, confused about the the definition of Frenchness, of French identity, that uh, they felt the need to have a, <laughs> a yeah. ministry to uh, help them figure out <laughs> what it means. Uh, so they, their sense of identity is clearly in crisis. You know, they, they feel under attack. They feel that the, the core of their identity, of their nation, of their state, 
their republic, their values, laïcité, uh, uh, is under attack by this Islamist assault that mm. they fantasize <laughs> everywhere. They see a, a radical Islamist behind everyone who wears a visible side, sign of Islamic faith. Uh, and they feel the need to can protect their uh, major values uh, by overreacting against that, as uh, one of your uh, guests was explaining when he was talking about the attempt to erase the, the visibility of Islam from the public space, because it's something that intimidates them, mm. that, that scares them. Um, so uh, it's almost like a, a reaction of protection in their mind, at least, huh, uh, against the religion that they continue to see in this typical uh, neo-colonial mindset that they developed over centuries. Uh, as fundamentally alien, not just alien to their Frenchness, to their identity, but to even life in the Western world. Huh? Uh, but to answer your questions, there, there are objective pillars of French identity, of what it means to be French. And I can cite a few ones uh, very quickly. The French language, of course, mm. that we are expected to cultivate. Uh, the main values of the nation, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and lately they added to that laïcité. Mm. Uh, uh, but always in relation to Islam. When they invoke laicite, it's always... Another you know, standard. If you're a Muslim, you, yeah. if, 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 if you're a Muslim, you can get worried about that <laughs> because you know what it means. It, it, it means that they're going to use that to um, uh, ban you from the public sphere. Uh, but they, they keep talking about laicite. It's a, it's a fetishized totemic word that they use uh, uh, as an excuse, as a pretext to uh, erase the presence of a religion that um, that worries them, that intimidates them. But there are other pillars of French identity. The positive memory of the French Revolution is something very important. Uh, the, the life of the arts uh, and, and having a rich cultural life. <laughs> yeah. you're as, as a French person, you're supposed to participate in, uh, in, in, the, in the cultural life of the nation and, uh, and even regional identity, also the, the regionalist identity. I always tell my students that I'm not really French. I'm Burgundian. I'm from Burgundy. So <laughs> before being uh, a French person, you are from a particular region. You're a Parisian, Corse, Corsican, Basque, Alsacien, Breton, uh, and then you're French. So the regionalist sense of identity is uh, almost more important than the national sense of identity. But it's an identity that's clearly in crisis at the moment, that has been unsettled by uh, immigration, by uh, new populations coming to the country with the very different cultures, uh, languages, mores, religions, of course, um, and they are trying to react in this uh, uh, uptight, rigid manner um, against the massive, drastic and very rapid cultural change around them that, uh, that worries a lot of them. Yes, yeah, so, so basically your identity can vary from region to region, from where you, wherever you come from. I think a lot of this, um, like you said, there's this fear of... Um, of you know the Muslim abaya and other and other religious um, sacraments that they do have, um, like the, uh -huh. like the, the hijab etc. Um, I think a lot of it is down to lack of education as well. Um, and you said that they should participate within society, and that's something which Islam actually promotes. So whether that's not being uh, upheld by the Muslims, that's also something that needs to be uh, considered. Uh, but at the same time, ha having a, f a deeper education into 
why Muslims wear what they do, I think that will alleviate a lot of the issues in itself. I think there's that 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 gap in understanding as well, which um, which would probably ease ease the situation. But from your personal point of view, uh, considering France's development in the past decades, can you tell us why this ban has happened? This ban, okay. The uh, first thing to uh, to realize, it's actually not a new ban. Uh, yeah. It's part of that historical seminal ban of March 2004 that was passed under former Conservative President Jacques Chirac, mm. uh, and which was really a seminal historical one uh, uh, that has changed a lot of things, uh, and that opens a, a kind of new era, a new sequence of uh, Islamophobia, I'm afraid, <laughs> uh, which gets crystallized uh, for, for the first time in a very visible manner around that ban of uh, March 15, 2004, which uh, bans uh, all ostensible religious Symbols. outfits, signs, symbols, yes. talk, activities from all public schools all the way to high schools included. It doesn't apply to university because in university they are adults, even though they are, they are trying to ban it in universities as well and to extend it further and further to other groups, other places. Uh, so the, uh, it's not a new ban, it's not a new law, it's not a new measure. Uh, uh, it's just part of that March 2000 law. Uh, and there was an uncertainty about the nature of the abaya, whether it was a religious outfit, whether it was an Islamic outfit. Uh, and the government just decided <clears throat> overnight <laughs> that, yes, uh, it's an Islamic outfit. Uh, plus, it's uh, obviously a very visible one. So uh, it constitutes an ostensible religious sign and as such, it falls under the March 2000 law and, must, and, and has no place in, a, in high school. Yeah. So they, are, they, are, they have just, what, what they, they did, they just defined the abaya as, in essence, in its nature, an Islamic sign, an ostensible Islamic sign. So they can ban that too. And it's not just the abaya, by the way, it's the kamis and even the jalabas. So they, they, uh, they, they ban the hijab. Uh, the hijab, obviously, is a religious sign. Yeah. <clears throat> but the abaya is not, in essence, an Islamic outfit. Even the French uh, uh, representative Islamic authorities, you know, the, the French Council on the, of the Muslim Cult, the Foundation for an Islam of France, which is a, like a kind of semi-official organism set up by the state, you know, to... Uh, to shape an Islam that would be compatible in their mind with French life and French values, even they have assessed that the abaya is not Islamic, that it's not religious. But the government decided otherwise. <laughs> so they can ban it too. Thank you, Dr. Alan. That's very interesting. And I'm sorry we're short of time as well. Um, we would have loved to spend more time speaking to you. Um, but thank you very much for, for joining us and giving us that, that lovely background and, uh, and uh, history into, into this issue. Thank you very much. Have a, rest, have a lovely rest of the day. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for having au me. Au revoir. Bye-bye. <laughs> au revoir. So we have, uh, we have our next guest um, now on the line, um, Anne Law. Um, who's currently uh, who's published? Uh, she's a currently established researcher and co-director of the research team, um, religions and pluralism in the research centres DRES. Uh, she is director of the International Research Network and Information Project URL. Uh, I think oh, I probably mispron mispronounced that. The legal and soci sociological information uh, concerning religion in Europe. Um, and Laure, um, thank you for for joining us on the show. Welcome and good morning. Thank you. My pleasure. 
so, so Anne, just going straight, driving straight, diving straight into the questions. There are various um, opinions regarding freedom of speech uh, about the abaya ban. What do you think, France is? Uh, why do you think France is uh, divided by their views regarding religion? Has France adopted the true way of secularism? <laughs> okay, so that's several questions. Yeah. Um, I, I think, first of all, it would be freedom of religion rather than freedom of speech here, yes. because it's more about acts than, than discourse, isn't it? But um, on the front, uh, why France is divided uh, by their views regarding religion, I think, uh, first of all, it's interesting to say that this ban on the abaya highlights how intertwined and complex questions pertaining to religion are, especially in France. And on this specific topic, there are people who would hold the same opinion, but for opposite reasons, as well as people who hold opposite opinions for the same reasons. So, for instance, in the name of the freedom of women, some will support the ban, saying that abaya is yet one form of oppression of women by the imposition of a specific clothing due to their gender, while some will oppose the ban because they say that women should be free to decide what they want to wear. So you see how difficult things are. And this matter is related also to a complex mixture of religion and politics. That's what the previous guest was saying. Well, we, even um, religious um, leaders in France have said, well, Abaya is not a religious clothing, though it seems that the debate is focusing about religion. So mm. that there... Mm. A very complex mixture of religion and politics. There's debate on the religious nature of the abaya. There's the question of education, of the religious freedom of children, of the place of religions in the public space. That's why it's such a, a heated debate. And France is possibly divided by their views regarding religion because it's now a country which is religious, religiously very diverse and comprises a great number of people claiming to be non-religious. It's more than one-third of French and growing. So people hold different views regarding religion because they also have different ties to religion. And since religion is deeply tied to identity, they hold these views strongly, thus the strong debate. But here it's not only a matter of religion, this is what the debate is about. Specifically, is Abaya religious? And also, should the state control what people wear? And are the schools and teachers properly trained as concerns ICT? And what are the true motives of these young people wearing this type of clothing? Are they not under the influence of a certain trend of Islam? Not, you know, Muslim as such, but because they are uh, supporting a very specific understanding of uh, what Islam is. And uh, this uh, trend has a desire for control of Islam uh, in a whole. So there are many other underlying questions. Also, if, if I may... Probably it's good to uh, to remind people that the French educational system is very different than the British one. So, uh, in what sense? Sorry. In what sense is it different? In what sense? Because when we say public school in France, it probably doesn't mean the same thing as what it means in in England. So there are three types of school in France, and the majority are public schools. But that means in France they are financed and run by the state. The teachers are government trained oh. and hired. And these schools must comply with a national curriculum. So that's what public school means in France. There are also private schools, and then we have two types of private schools. Either they sign a contract with the state, and that grants them funding if they comply with certain rules and regulations. And then there's a third type of school, that's private schools who go without a contract and then without funding. And private schools are the exception in France. We have around 13 million of pupils, and 
some 80,000 only who go to private schools. So education is compulsory in France, but not uh, the fact of going to public schools to have education. So um, it's a very my, it's a small minority of pupils who go to private schools. And these private schools can be denominational, but some are only private because they want to implement specific pedagogical methods, which are not the ones uh, that the government recognizes or, or funds. Hmm. Well, what remains is that the huge majority of pupils attend public school and that these schools are government held and financed and they must comply thus with the national principle of laicity. And no. it's also important hmm. to... Sorry. So I was just going to ask in regards to um, the the ban as well, um, because obviously you know when when it happens that uh, the government says that you know in schools we're not allowed to you know to wear the 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 abayas you know to wear the 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 hijab and all of these things, obviously that would have uh, you know it's marginalizing the the Muslim women as well the girls as well. So how how would that sort of affect their integration? Um, into the French society, as well, if they're even not even letting them um, be free and wearing, allowing them to wear what they want to, that would obviously affect them their integration and obviously the the younger generations, the future generations as well. Well, I, I'm not sure I follow you on that on the effect of uh, of the, the abaya ban on the integration of Muslim women because that that would use as a starting point the idea that. Uh, first of all, wearing an abaya concerns all Muslim women in France, whereas here we're talking of uh, several hundreds of cases, but there are around 7 million Muslims in France. So the ban itself, I guess, wouldn't make any difference for the majority of Muslim women. And it would also be strange to consider that Muslim women are not already integrated in the French society. Even maybe mm-hmm. some of them may be, um, how could we say, uh, recently uh, immigrated and uh, not totally immigrated, but uh, there is a link between Islam and immigration in France, but increasingly uh, Islam nowadays, because time passes, is a religion of French people born in France. So I don't see... It could be more of an, uh, an indirect fallback, because this is yet another way in which Islam is pointed out. There's always in France a specific relation to Islam, and behind that are all the stereotypes of Islam as a political religion, as being a religion strongly connected to terrorism. So, mm. and there is also the view, which also is wrong in my opinion, that there's a link between strong religious beliefs and radical behavior, and that there would be a natural tendency to get more and more religious, then increasingly radical, and that, like, to make a kind of a caricature of that, wearing the abaya would be the first step towards joining Al-Qaeda. So, mm. uh, <laughs> the, the, the concern, then, is then um, stereotyping Islam and... and um, pointing out to Islam as being a religion of, uh, you know, caricature, a religion of terrorists and a religion of, of uh, a, a trend to want to dominate the entire world and so on. That has negative fallback on the integration of any person connected to, to Islam in France because that's not the way they want to be viewed. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. I, I guess it's very important here to underline that education in France has always been a battlefield of secularism. You know, when... When the principle of secularism was established at the beginning of the 20th century, it was in a country which was dominated by the Catholic religion. 
over 90%, maybe 95% of the people belonged to the Catholic religion. And so historically, education had largely always been in the hands of the church. So obtaining a place of education that was not denominational and that escaped the grip of religion was one of the major areas of emancipation from the Catholic Church. So because of that, it's very important to most French people that schools remain neutral, both religiously and politically. So even people with strong religious convictions will still support the principle that there should be no visible religious symbols in schools. So part of this is indeed some people taking the opportunity of targeting Islam and trying to fight Islam and put, to push it out of the public uh, space as much as possible. But part of it is also that there are many people who think that it's very, very important that there would be no kind of religious influence on children, whichever religion, and even the Christian one, even the Catholic one. We had some people, you know, uh, claiming a few years ago that um, some... Um, there was a, the national curriculum exam was held in a private school because that that was where they had space available, and then they claimed that it couldn't be valid because there was a crucifix hanging on the wall. <laughs> so it, it's a strong battlefield against religious influence, but not only um, you know what pertains to Islam. Mm. That has also to be reminded. Of course, when it comes to Islam, since there are many other questions which come in the debate as well, then it usually heats up more. But it's not only that. And that, you know, it is quite unfortunate uh, as well that, it, that that happens. And I'm, I'm going to have to sort of apologize to you there as well, but, uh, th- th- you know, because we're sort of running out of time. Um, but uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and speaking to us and uh, elaborating a little bit more about, uh, you know, about the society uh, over there in France as well. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Have a, have a nice day. Bye. Thank you. Um, let's speak to our next guest who's on the line with us, um, Christine Orn, who is a professor of uh, of Society of Religion. Sociology. Uh, sociology, <laughs> uh, religion at uh, at uh, Coventry University. And the researchers, researchers women and religion and religion in universities as well. Thank you so much and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, just to just to begin with, what's your view in regards to the the ban on Nabai in France, and how it will affect the the French society? Well, of course, it's the latest in, in a series of about of bans that have been going for about um, twenty years or so. And, and you know, there may, there may be some good intentions behind this, so to make all students equal in in a classroom, for example. Um, but I think that also assumes that equality means sameness. Um, and, and many countries like the UK understand that um, actually equality should mean supporting um, religious freedom as well. And I think that that's something that is, is missing in the French case. Um, so I, I, I think there will be negative results. I think it will mean girls missing school. Um, I think it will mean parents being fined. I think it's likely to entrench Islamophobia in French society. So I would say largely um, negative effects will happen. And what are the effects it will will have on Muslim women, in particular those who cannot express um, their religious belief in a free manner? You you said how equality is there, they're kind of defining it as sameness. Um, Mm. Is that not like making them feel uh, ostracized? Is that not making them feel like they're not welcome in the schools or, or, or wherever the public sphere is? Yes, I think so. I mean, of course, we have we have to say that most most Muslim women in France don't wear the abaya or even the hijab. I think about a third wear wear the hijab. Um, so you could say, well, the direct 
of impacts of this will only be on a, a very small minority. But if, but it but it but it isn't just about that. Um, you know, small minority. It's also about sort of the messages that it sends about um, are Muslims welcome in in, in 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 France. You know, I think if France wants to support gender equality, which it claims to do, um, it needs to be encouraging all women into the public sphere, into work, into education, into politics, etc. Um, so I think the you know the direct effects will be will be will be really um, quite pronounced on on some women who will feel you know unable to go to school, um, who will then not get the qualifications, not be able to go to university, not not get um, you know jobs that they might have wanted to do, and then that of course impacts their self esteem as well. It affects a lot of the choices they have, and it affects their integration in society as well. Thank you, Christine, very much. Uh, just very, very quickly, if you, if you can just explain in like uh, 30 seconds, what can we do to tackle um, this issue that, um, you know, that we, we've currently found ourselves in, uh, in a fair manner? Um, we have to work on three levels, I think, law and policy. Um, so the lawmakers need to intervene. Um, this can be internationally as well, journalists researchers etc then there's a level of um sort of organizations work and schools so women's organizations muslim organizations who are contesting this at the moment in france and then on the individual level you know how do people relate to each other in, in a workplace or a classroom on the in the individual level how can we have dialogue about this how can we respect other people how we how we can decide sort of not to reprimand an employee um for something that we think is you know, um, is, 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 is in, incorrect dress. Um, let's just have more dialogue um, about this. Thank you very much, Christine. I'm sorry for, for rushing at the end, uh, but um, you've given us good information that we can take away and hopefully our listeners have benefited from, from this discussion today. Um, have a lovely rest of the day and uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That was Christine On, um, who is a professor of sociology of religion at Coventry University. She researches women and religion and religion in universities. Um, so, you know, this was a very, um, <clears throat> has been yeah. jam-packed uh, program today. And it's a very, obviously very controversial topic. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's something that will um, continue to be a means of controversy. And, and you know, going the way that it's going is it's only showing that there's going to increase tensions. Uh, but yeah, it's been a very... Um, uh, interesting, interesting lineup of, uh, yeah. of of subjects we've had today. Yeah, um, we have. It's, it, it it is interesting as well. But one thing which is uh, you know I think people should actually understand is that the you know the the, the reason why women Muslim women wear the abaya or the hijab because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an injunction in the Holy Quran, isn't it? Yeah. And it's to keep the chastity in check as well. Um, it's not just it's not just to to oppress them or anything. But uh, you know that's our show for that's our show for today. Thank you for the producers and researchers: Nafisa Amini, Mehrish Dogger, Navira Khan, Tamsila Khurram, Sofia uh, Shinwari, Hania Yakub, Tanzil Khurram, Naima Chaudhry, the technical department, uh, Nuruddin yourself. Yep. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum Warahmatullah.